Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, you ready? This is a big one. This week it is legendary producer Bob Rock. However, this conversation is a little different than you might be imagining. Now, I don't know if you knew this. Bob started out in his native Canada in the early 70s, late 80s, in an excellent new wavy band called The Payolas. He and his musical partner, Paul Hyde, they formed this band. They're a couple of punks, and they're so good. And they, uh, they might, they're probably best known for this song right here, Eyes of a Stranger, which most of us probably remember from the Valley Girl soundtrack. This was also on their second album, Eyes of a Str- or, uh, No Stranger to Danger, which, incidentally, was produced by Mick Ronson. So that band puts out three albums as the Payolas. Eventually, it becomes Paul Hyde and the Payolas. Eventually, Bob and Paul start their own thing called Rock and Hyde. The sound changes drastically from being something like more like The Clash to a little bit more like Simply Red or something. Now, you guys know I love that sound, but it's just a far cry from where you begin. A lot of concessions are made to get this band breaking in the way that it is believed that they can break, but it never quite happens. Well, while all of this is going on, Bob gets a job as a sound engineer in a prominent studio in Vancouver, British Columbia. And that's when things like Loverboy, Honeymoon Suite, those excellent Canadian rock bands start happening. And then that's what leads to the amazing success that he got with Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, The Cult, Motley Crue, and of course, Metallica's Black Album. Now, let me tell you, he's been asked about those things a million times. And the reason he agreed to come talk to me was because I wanted to focus primarily on the Payolas. So about half this conversation is sort of the history of that band. And then the other half is, you know, sort of a high level overview of some of these bands. I purposely didn't want to ask him the same questions he's gotten a million times. So I tried to touch on some different things. This is really an interesting and unique conversation with him because it's mostly about his love of music, the bands that he was into, his love of making records, you know? And so I I wanted it to be a little bit different and unique for him so that he would enjoy talking to me. And I hope we got there. So if anyone's out there thinking, why didn't you ask him this or that? That's why I didn't ask him. He's probably been asked it a million times before. I have to give a humongous thank you to listener Adam Foster for putting me in contact with Bob. Adam, thank you so much. I would never have guessed I could have talked about the Paolas with Bob Rock himself. Uh, Bob lives in Hawaii. However, when we spoke, he was in L.A. staying at a friend's house. You know, I've been wanting to cover the payolas for years. I've been doing this for about three and a half years now. And um, I've always wondered if you'd be open to talking about that. And I thought, you know, he must get asked about things like Metallica just incessantly. So, and we may touch on some of that later, but I thought it, it would be fun to hear your perspective on a band as great and and varied as the payolas were back at the back in the day. And um, so I'm really grateful anyway that you're willing to talk to me about it. No, I was just going to say I'm very proud of my work and my life with Paul Hyde. I mean, yeah, very proud of it. Good. Um, you know, I, Paul it seems like such a, a unique personality. I was wondering when I go back, because I've been listening to the Paolas nonstop lately to get ready to talk to you again. And I thought, you know, given the time frame of when you guys are coming out, this sounds very much to me like, because he, Paul's British, or I believe he did yeah. anyway he grew up in britain so is he is he the one that's sort of bringing this elvis costello clash 
even some of the specials that sort those sort of ingredients into the mix of the payolas or was is this the are those the bands you guys were just really into at the time you know the the thing is is when i met paul i was i guess i was 16 he was 16 mm-hmm. i used to take the bus to school every day to go to belmont high and this guy showed up and he he was had his head shaved <laughs> and he had a long dark coat and somebody told me that he was british and I just had to talk to him. Uh-huh. You know, my, my, my life, my love of music is really based in English, mm. you know, kind of blues mm. at the time. The English band still is kind of like a, a main kind of muse is the, the English music scene. Really? And so, you know, we, well, just, yeah, constantly. Yeah. Um, you like know, who? Give me, a, in, give me a name specifically. Well, I, I think at the time, the big thing was Bowie. Mm, um, but yeah, yeah it, it, that was just, well, it was a little early when I was 16, but just the more that I got to know them, basically our lives kind of were just tied together. Yeah, we yeah. Ha- also had a friend uh, who was the drummer, his name Billy Alexander. Mm-hmm. And actually Billy and Paul were probably closer than I was to mm. either of them. But we had this, we had this, this relationship. We went to England, the three of us together. And that was all, you know, based in the fact that, you know, we had played in blues bands in Victoria and in school and after school, Paul and I and Billy. And we went to England in 19, I think it was January 1973 mm. to become rock stars, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I didn't so know we, that. We lasted, you didn't know that, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I can't believe it. Our, our parents actually let us just go to England. On, okay. I had $175. <laughs> and um, we actually took a drum kit. Really? You shipped that over there? To, no. Well, um, the drummer, his dad was in the Air Force, so he oh, got one perfect. of those flights over to uh, <clears throat> Germany, actually, okay. with his drum kit. And we carried our guitars. Paul and I went to Air Canada. Anyway. That's crazy. We ended up in London all together. Well, it's... It's a very long story, but I would just say that that, that was uh, kind yeah. of this, this historical thing that we did together. Uh, we lasted, I guess, about four months, and Paul stayed, I think, almost a year. Billy and I came home. Okay. You know, and when he came home, he brought all these records that, you know, had a huge impact on me, like uh, a band called the Heavy Metal Kids, mm. and like... Bebop Deluxe, the Sensational Alex Harvey Band, yeah. and Slade, all these go. English bands, and he brought these back, and it just even you know that even cemented more of that stuff in my head. Yeah. When we finished, when we went, came back from England, we worked in Mills up, up Island in Port Alberni, and we ended up. Going on different ways. We worked in Winnipeg for a while too in a cardboard box factory. Oh my God. <laughs> That's great. I tied knots and he packed cardboard. Um, you know, and all other friends went to Winnipeg too. So, yeah. you know, we, you know, for whatever reason, we all came back to Vancouver and Paul went to Toronto to find out what, you know, find another place to be, I guess. Yeah. He was curious about Toronto. And I, uh, I ended up. In fact, well, going back, working in construction, and one time, one day on the radio, I heard this ad about, do you want to learn how to make records? 
Oh, wow. uh, and uh, it was a course, a six six day course offered in Vancouver, and my parents, luckily enough, gave me the money to do it. That's incredible. And that's how I got my job in Little Mountain. Yeah, I went to that course, and Roger Monk just basically phoned me one day and said, "Do you want a job at Little Mountain?" I that's said, yes. incredible. Wow. So yeah, let me ask you I, some. I, I, let me ask you some questions about details about this. So when you guys moved to London, were you the payolas that we would eventually come to know six or seven years later? Did it, I mean, you, you went there with this band trying to make it and it was multiple years before it actually happened. We had been playing in this, this blues band. Oh, okay. Uh, called the, the Paul Kane blues band. Hmm. The name doesn't mean anything, but we had been playing, that you know, it, it, bars like uh, the Club Tango and Purple Onion and Nine and the Fifth mm-hmm. in Vic- Victoria, mm. and uh, that that was the basis of us playing together. When we got out of school, it was the um, we weren't really writing music, but we just thought we'll go to England, we'll join a band, or we'll find some people, yeah, and we'll put something together. Yeah, it was a, a band from Victoria called May May Blitz that went to London. And they did quite well. Okay. To pick up the story, I ended up in Vancouver working at Little Mountain, and Paul ended up coming back to Vancouver and was working in a bartender as a bartender in a Legion. Mm. Okay. And you know, so we got together. But that's we were, you know, as friends, we were hanging out, mm-hmm. and then punk broke. You know, so the Sex Pistols album came out, and the Clash album came out. Yeah. And you know, it was just that whole. Basically, everything we loved was in those two bands. Yeah. You know, sure. you know, we had gotten into reggae because reggae because of the Stones. You know, I've always dabbled in that. Oh, and the Stones brought the you band. to reggae, not those two-tone bands, the ska bands of the day. Well, no, but that was part of the appeal of, oh, of, of punk music that, you know, because we liked, we liked the Stones. Yeah, and sure. They were big, but they... That's where I discovered, you know, reggae and, yeah. and of course, Bob Marley, too. We right. just, you know, we just went through music and, but okay. the thing that when punk broke, it was like, this is us. Mm-hmm. This is, this, what this represents, you know, it was three chords, as they say, three chords in the truth. Yeah. Um, but it was very much so, so we could say, we could actually write a song. Mm-hmm. Like, we weren't very good. But we could write a song, write a song, and we could be part of that club mm-hmm. because it just spoke to us. Basic rock with energy. Oh, by the way, I should say when Iggy Pop, when the Stooges played in Vancouver, because of the Bowie connection, Paul and I came over to Vancouver and saw the Raw Power tour. Oh, okay at, at the at the Pender Ballroom. Oh no way! At, I, yeah, I think I forget which. We didn't stay at the Cecil. It was another hotel, like the Lotus Hotel or something. We hitchhiked over, and we were there when the Raw Power Tour came to Vancouver. And that, I mean, both of us, that was that was, that it. was it. Yeah. It was, you know, just seeing him, uh, you know, we had bought the record Raw Power and liked it, loved it. Yeah. And that was the energy that we liked. So when we saw it, that that's pre-punk, it was like, this is, this, this is, is us. This is, right. this is yeah. Okay. So that's what we did. Anyway, we ended up, um, we started writing songs and, and just getting together with some other people. Yeah. And uh, 
I was working at a studio and I said, like, I've got this music. I've never written a song before. <laughs> but I kind of, uh, Sammy was, I was definitely influenced by 10th Avenue Freeze Up because I could actually mm. play that song. Good one. And that's the bass, that's uh, by Springsteen. And that's actually, uh, I could play those four chords. Yeah. So I, I put together, I could put together kind of an idea and we recorded it. That's incredible. And then, you know, Paul had yeah. written the lyrics. Uh, and we got Art Bergman to play um, Vox Organ on it, the yeah. main lick. And we had to have another song. So Paul had come up with a song. Um, we put it on the B-side. We put out a thousand copies singles. They sold out right away. And we got a record deal. So tell us, just to clarify, what was the A-side? What was the B-side? A-side was China Boys. The B-side was just want to make some noise. put it out thinking that we just wanted to be in the club with the Pointed Sticks and DOA and mm -hmm. all the bands there. We just wanted to kind of be in that scene in Vancouver and it was a fantastic scene. I really? still look back at it as oh yeah. So the punk scene was seem, was just blossoming there in Vancouver. Yes. Wow. It was just it was kind of like our lives between probably well it was our lives for a long time. Yeah. Um like all those all the people, the musicians, they were our friends. And I recorded a lot of them at Little Mountain. So mm -hmm. we just, I was just immersed in that. And this guy came out and loved China Boys, Michael Gardant from A&M. And he, he signed us to, to basically a basic record deal. We made an E.T. And it's so by good. making the E.T. Yeah, yeah we... Um, I love it. Jukebox. Such a great track. <laughs>
Yeah, Tupac is amazing. It's, it's like we started writing songs and, you know, we tried to get better. But, you know, the thing is, is, you know, I'm basically the music guy. Paul was always the lyrical guy. And he had he had it in his mind, lyrics and poetry, mm-hmm. etc. And he's he's the guy that really, I think, made us special, mm-hmm. you know, because he, you know, his lyrics are, you know, well, he still blows me away to this day, all the stuff he wrote, you know. So I was blessed to be with the right guy. Yeah, definitely. The right time. He's got the right attitude, too. He's a perfect front man for that kind of sneering, you know, piss and vinegar kind of angry punk band that you guys were. But you were tuneful, too. It wasn't just thrashing about. It was there was some poppiness to it, some catchiness. And he was the perfect guy to deliver those messages at that time, I think, anyway. Yeah, you know, like, for instance, when he was in Toronto, he saw a band called Rough Trade. And, mm. and of course, we all know Rough Trade in Canada. But their first album, he saw them live and then bought the direct-to-disc album, brought it back, like Birds of a Feather and Take Me, all these great tracks. But he saw them live, and she was very much the same, in the same category with attitude as Alex Harvey was. Mm-hmm. Which And Alex Harvey is pre-punk. And, you know, I mean... Bon Scott idolized him. Yeah, absolutely. he was just an incredible front man, and uh, that's where that attitude came from. Yeah, you know. And going back to England, you know, we saw the Skinheads, we saw Boot Boys. You know, we were into glam. Mm. You know, when we went over there. So I don't know how to say it, but you know, we loved the Dolls. We sure. Loved the Stooges. So it was all about attitude. It was yeah. our music. We couldn't play like the Stones. We couldn't play like Aerosmith. We couldn't play like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. You know, those were the great musicians. We were just guys that loved the sound of amplifiers cranked up and play Absolutely. as fast as we can. Absolutely. Okay. There you go. So let me ask you, when the first album comes out in a place like this, and it's so good, and you guys, the, the things that I always find really interesting when I talk to people for this show are the transitions in their life. And you've been signed to A&M, that EP comes out. I don't know how well it's sold, but it's you know, four perfect songs on this EP, and then you've got to put out your first album. How does your life change? Are you, you know, those first hearing yourself on the radio moments? Are you, who are you touring with? Are you seeing your records in stores and that's giving you a real a rise? How, you know, how are you feeling as this dream of becoming a rock star after six or seven years is starting to come to fruition? Paul and I were just, you know, we got together all the time and we rehearsed and put together songs because we had, we, 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 you know, they said, you got to do an album. Actually, the funny thing about the EP is when we signed, they, they said, you, you have lots of songs. And we said, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we got lots of them. And we had none. <laughs> we, we wrote Jukebox and TNT, you know, in no time. Yeah. Hey. 
uh-huh. right? Because and and Rose, he had Rose that he okay. was fooling around with. Thank God he had that, but we wrote uh, Jukebox and TNT like in a week because we had to. And, and see, so, you know, they'd like that and they okay an album and they were going, oh, fuck. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, but the thing is, is we were learning and we were starting, I don't know, we did, we were kind of just trying to copy the bands that we love, mm-hmm. you know, not copy, but we were so influenced. We went, it was very quickly, we developed what? what was us yeah you know and and now we wanted mick ronson to produce the first album we actually reached out to him really you know to produce in a place like this and evidently he told us he didn't get the he didn't get the demos for the first album until we it had already uh, run its course and so he got the first album demos and said yeah i want to work with them and he showed up and we were, you know, we played him the demos for the second record. Yeah, I mean, it was hard for me because, you know, we were so kind of had a vision in a way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the record company was throwing all these other producers and we we're kind of going like, no, we want Ronson or no one. So I basically said, well, I'll just record it. Ballsy. So, and I didn't know what to be, to be quite honest, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew yeah. how to engineer and, and stop and I knew how to mix, but. I wasn't a producer. Uh-huh. Maybe I thought I was at the time, but I soon, soon discovered that I wasn't. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, it, but that represented us really as innocent as we were at the time. That's a great album. There's great it songs is. on it. Oh, it's so good. And I played games in the shadow of the moon. Danced too many times to the same old tune. Freedom drive from '65. And I played Main Street, the one that destroys Leaning on windows, laughing at the toys Said it's the colors she enjoys Not the boys Now she's got older The streets are much colder It was 
was a child with flowers in her hair. Amazed at the prophets promises to spare. Now what did, what was I mean again, going back to these transitions, you're this like snot nosed little punk band that I mean you've had some success maybe in Canada. How did you manage to get Mick Ronson to agree to come produce you? I mean, that's gotta feel amazing. You get one of your heroes to come be a part of what you're doing. You have no idea what it meant to both of us. Oh, I you believe know, it. That, I mean, I had a picture, I had a poster of Play Don't Worry on my wall, the oh. Ronson, first Ronson solo oh. album. Oh. I mean, he was everything. And, you know, to this day, he's my biggest muse as really? a producer. Oh, wow. oh, there's no question. I learned so much from that guy. You know, when you're around people like that, you just soak in what, what, you know, just what you love. And yeah. he taught me so much about being a producer because he was just, I idolized him. Yeah. He was, you know, he's my biggest muse, as I said, for production. Huh. No question. Give us one idea, um, like a, a one, you know, lesson that you take with you. What's one thing, one of the biggest things you learned from Mick that's led to your success? Well, I can tell you it's, it starts with eyes of a stranger. You know, we played him all the demos mm. and, and he said, he listened to eyes of a stranger and he said, well, we're not going to get much better than that. <laughs> and basic, you know, and and so we did an edit to make the bridge work because there's a mistake in the edit uh, in the the bridge. Hmm. You know, I saw strangers a demo I recorded over an Eaton's commercial or a Bay commercial, I should say. Uh, after I did a jingle, and Chris Taylor was the was the dub engineer, the drummer, and he could play to a drum machine. So we just put a demo together, and Paul wrote the lyrics and. I mean, Ronson kept it. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, that you maybe people would think that's a small thing, but what I learned from it is that to recognize that there was something great there and he didn't need to make it his own. Yep. He just left it because he knew there was something great about it. And I just learned that you just you don't you don't play with other people's music yeah. or lives, so to speak. Mm. I thought that was brilliant, and it continued, you know, uh, all the lessons. But that to me. I just went, wow, I've never, see, before that, everybody that I've met that were producers, they were very demanding, mm. very kind of into their thing. This is a guy that kind of went, no, that's great. We'll keep this. Wow. But on the other hand, other songs, like I had written uh, Hastings Street, and it was very, I was into darkness in the edge of town. I'm living down Hastings Street. At that point, Springsteen to us was like Tom Petty and was was kind of in that Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, semi-punk mm. 
kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Darkness on the Edge of Town, I got more than Born to Run. I don't know why. Wow. But anyway, so Hastings Street, Hastings Street, I'd written it on piano and we put it together. So it's kind of a rock piano thing, very much based on Springsteen. Mm-hmm. And he said, let's try it this way. You know, let's just try this. And yeah. if it doesn't work. We've got, you know, we've got your version, but let's just try this. And, you know, we put it together and he, he took it to another place we would have never gone to. That's incredible. And it's much better than that. That to me is once again, is kind of the basis of what I do. Mm-hmm. And I think every band I've ever worked with, I say, look, if I, if we do something that's my idea, I don't care if we use it, but why don't we try it? Yeah. You know, because, because a lot of people get married to their ideas, right. both as artists and even producers, they have this one thing they do. Yeah. So he taught me also to look beyond sometimes he even said this to me, he says, whatever you got to do to get a song, Bob, you do it. And then you find its home. So let's find the home for Hastings Street. Interesting. And I went. So he had that vision. Yeah. So we got we we got schooled on the first album, No Stranger to Danger by Bronson. And then we became such close friends with him. I mean, they, really? he, he toured with us in Canada. Yeah. No way. We got the Yeah, we got the split end tour, the whole Canadian when they, Ooh, they had said Excellent. They had, uh, yeah, the uh, you know, I want you. Yeah. That record what sure. I forget what it's called. But that album came out and they were touring on on the second one, Time and Tide. Uh-huh. And they asked us to play. And we didn't have a keyboard player because he, he kinda left. And he says, Well, I'll I'll come with you. And we're going like what? He says, yeah, I'll That's play keys. Incredible. Yeah, so he played keys. And the Mick Ronson we in, played keys for, for the Paolos as you guys opened for news, for uh, Split Ends. Yeah, I mean, what a guy. hilarious. Wow. I know, but yeah. <laughs> that's insane. Good for him. Well, it is insane. So Yeah, but that's the kind of guy he was. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was just, yeah. So when we, we, Rehearsed. We did sound check at the Royal Theater in Victoria, and you know, split ends came to came up to check us as we were sound checking, and I could see in out of the corner of my eye what they were doing. They just noticed they noticed Mick, and they were freaking out, <laughs> freaking out. They're going, "Oh my God, that's Bronson! Oh my God, this is weird." Anyway, so we we all became very close friends on that tour. But he played keys and sang background. Incredible. He did it all across Canada. From Victoria to Quebec City, That's we just incredible. had the best time. Good, the best time. Good. Yeah. Did you and you stayed in touch and, with him up until the time he died? I I hope a little bit at oh, least. Oh yeah. Okay, good. I I saw him actually. My band Rockhead. We were warming up for Bon Jovi in Europe, and I had lunch with him. I uh, already knew he was sick, but yeah. we had lunch and spent the afternoon together. I guess two weeks before he passed. You know. Wow. That's great. I cried. Believe, yeah, I bet. Not, believe it or not, I cried for days. I believe it. I'm okay with saying that too. Yeah. It's just I lost somebody that was really important in my life. Yeah. And Paul, I could tell you something else. When we did the the next album, Hammer Our Drum, it was Paul's birthday, and Ronson had uh, got Ian Hunter as a surprise to come <laughs> out to Vancouver. <laughs> Ian Hunter showed up on Paul's birthday, walked in with his shades on and Paul turned beat red and just started laughing. He just could not stop. It was, it was probably the biggest day in his life. 
That you is know? crazy. And we wrote a song. We wrote. We wrote a song with them. Which one? You know, I'll find another. guitar solo on that song right i had done one well because we put it together recorded it and i looked back into the control room and i had mick ronson staring at me and ian hunter staring at me and i had to do a guitar solo uh-huh. so the story goes i just totally i didn't know how to i didn't know how to play i was yeah. just going like what am i gonna do that's mick ronson <laughs> looking at me and i said you do the solo and he said no you gotta do it so what did i do i just played the melody I Did you? I was really kind of pushed. I just played the melody because I could not. <laughs> In that so, moment, just too much pressure. Was, yeah. Oh, that's a great story. Oh, man. Okay. Well, good. So let's, I mean, let's talk about the progression of the sound of the Paolas. I mean, you know, by the time that fourth album comes out, you guys are now the sort of ballad you know, uh, you're the only love. That's a nice song, but that's a nice song for a band like Swing Out Sister or Wet 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 or you know what I mean? It's uh it's not 
it's not in keeping with what made the payola special in the first place. How are you guys yeah. dealing with the call to con- to make some concessions artistically at that time? Well, really, it comes down to to kind of the fact that when you have a, a record company and they, you know, they did three records kind of our way, mm-hmm. and I think they loved uh, Hammer on a Drum, but it just didn't it didn't go beyond Canada. Yeah, you know, we toured the states, and you know, one of the biggest problems in the states was our name. It just didn't work for the industry, and we were starting to figure out. We started to learn about the music business. Mm-hmm. And we were basically told that if we wanted to do another record, we had to use, they said, David Foster. Oh, that's right. And we were going, yeah, and, and you know, things mm-hmm. were changing like like we couldn't, both of us had no money. Mm-hmm. So we had to continue with A&M because, you know, I guess this is where it all starts to go sideways. It's like we both had, you know, we were both married. We had kids. Yeah. And so decisions end up being kind of like financial ones. Sure, of course. And just like it's it's hard to take. Yeah. But we had to, you know, we had to keep going. That's at that point, you know, I was just making wages as an engineer at Little Mountain. Mm-hmm. I was barely I was barely surviving. You know, so yeah. you know, when we had a deal, we we made financial decisions, which is the worst thing. You know. Well, a lot of bands it have to do that. It was tough to take, you know. Yeah. And, you know, so we played the game with the record company and, you know, there's beneath, you know, David Foster's production. There's some really great songs. Yeah. Really great songs. Sure. Sure. But it just, it just wasn't us. No. But the other thing is, is that the thing is, is that that's the, the album that's called Paul Hyde and the Bailouts and management was already trying to separate the two of us because they thought that I was getting, I was starting to do a lot of records. Mm. Maybe they saw that I would be doing that more than being in a band. So mm. they brought in another player to play guitar. And it was just, and they were going to basically make Paul the main point of the band, which to me just felt like that started like, and Paul, basically Paul kind of had to do it. Yeah. and was okay with it because he saw maybe the same thing. You know, basically, like I said, that was a tough time for both yeah. of us. He had to make decisions based on his life, and I had to make decisions based on my life right. at the time. I was watching the video for "You're the Only Love," and it's this. You know, uh, you guys are. You know, he, Paul's got the bleach blonde hair, and you guys have you know big shoulder pads, and there's a grand piano there, and it's just it looks like something you know breathed would have done at the time. And now I really like all that stuff. That's not a knock necessarily. Again, going back to what we'd said, it's just not like you. Were there any, were there, were there conversations like even on the set of that video between you and Paul, where you were just kind of looking at each other, like what, what have we done? Or would you just like roll your eyes at each other? Was it unsaid? You know what I mean? Like what kind of actual conversations took place? Did you have to call each other? You know, did Paul call you in the middle of the night and say, you know, Bob, they want me to dye my hair and wear shoulder pads and uh, we don't have any money and I think I'm just going to have to do it. And, uh, David Foster is going to make kind of slick us up, but he's a legend. So let's, let's go along with it. Are you with me on this? You know, and you guys have to kind of come to Jesus about it. What's the, what are the talks? Well, if you look at the history of when that album came out, you know, it it was almost like the punk scene that 
we mm. were, you know, imp, you know, that, that was the start of how we did it. Yeah. Very true. That was not that it didn't sell. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. The pistols and the clash sold, but, and a few other bands sold, but it didn't sell. Yeah. So, you know, at this point we're going like, well, I guess we got to try and be, you know, with culture at that mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. and the, the shoulder pads and, Paul dyed his hair on his own. Oh, and it, okay. was, it was really funny because Paul, when we did videos, you know, I, some of the things I wore was like, we had the worst videos. It's like, <laughs> we were just trying, we're, and we, I think he would admit it too. I mean, right. there's a couple that I think are really good, but we just, we were just trying to figure it out. Not everybody knows. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. at that point, so, I mean, the bands were kind of like that. Yeah. You know, they, that's what, I mean, we toured and saw other bands like the Motels and all these bands that mm-hmm. we played, even Cheap Trick. Mm-hmm. We we're, were learning how to be a band in a, in a weird way. Yeah. We became a band with all the touring, but we made some bad decisions. We, we allowed it to happen. And yeah. going, looking back and working like, for instance, with Metallica and some of the bands like even Motley Crue, you know, they, they, they taught me about integrity and mm-hmm. believing Mm-hmm. more than I was taught. I didn't have anybody that taught me that. Yeah. And right. I don't think Paul did. Yeah. You know, working with other bands, then I went, like Metallica never, never, ever did anything for anybody except for their vision. Right. And I realized that, you know, by working with, like even Bon Jovi and Aerosmith and all the bands that I did, I I learned that, oh my God, we should have just said, fuck you yeah this you is know? us but yeah. but but then like i say in life we had no success of course we had no money so at some point you gotta go like i guess we gotta we gotta cave yeah play the and game of course we both hated it and regret it but some good songs but, came but out then, of that though you know that's it that that's the thing there's some great songs in there and yeah. you know i look at i you know myself i can look past what i don't like to hear yeah. And I, I just know I feel really good about some of those songs. Good, good. But the great thing, the great thing of the fact is, is really it ended up that what happened is we became Rock and Hide, which was mm-hmm. really our friendship, and we got over that, and we still wanted to write, and we wanted to be together. So we knew we couldn't be the Paleos anymore after that mm-hmm. that album. So we just became Rock and Hide, and. And, you know, our, I think our writing got better. Sure. You know? Under the Volcano Somehow. is a great album. With, and yeah. Dirty Water was a decent hit, I think at least in Canada, right?
It yeah. did well in the States. Good. You know? Okay. Yeah. So... Isn't there yeah, a, uh, then, didn't you guys put in the liner? And I don't own the album. I've only, I've heard it on YouTube, but is it, isn't there like a line in there somewhere about, you know, thanks to, I'm forgetting, I'm blanking now all of a sudden who produced it's, that it's album. Bruce Fairburn. Bruce, yeah, to, Bruce did. Yeah. Thanks yeah, to Bruce for letting us be ourselves, which was sort of an underhanded knock against David Foster, maybe. It wasn't under, it was definitely a full over, a full on, like, <laughs> overhand pitch. <laughs> I was throwing you a softball. Okay, great, great. No, there, oh, was, great. there was there was no softball. That was overhand as hard yeah. as we could. Okay, good. Oh, and to great. Bruce, we just, because, you know, most of the record, at that point, I had recorded, I had a tape machine and a board and, you know, accumulate, I accumulate gear and stuff. So uh-huh. a lot of the basic tracks were all demos mm. and we overdubbed and, and I knew that I was losing it in terms of finishing it. So I said, Bruce, would you help us finish? So he did help us finish, but as, as it said, he let us be us. He didn't yeah. dominate, which is another thing. One of the, one of the great things about Fairburn, he saw what was good as well. And he just let us, you know, we were together and, and he was there when we, he was needed and he let us do what we wanted. So That's great. it was great. Okay. Let's talk about yep. the effect of the Valley Girl soundtrack. I mean, I think most people who know who the Paolas are, at least in the States anyway, discover you through yep. Eyes of the Stranger from that soundtrack. Do you find that to be true too? It was, it was that, but you see, the thing is, is like the K-Rock kind of like power uh, was really Southern California. Uh, so okay. everybody in Southern California heard it. We were number one on K-Rock. Oh. Now there was 10 years later mm-hmm. being number one on K-Rock mean you were, you would be number one everywhere in America. Yeah. We were there for, we were number one on the list in K-Rock for like a month. Okay. And everybody heard that. And of course that's why I got on to got it. Valley Girls, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But perennially, I mean, over the years, do you still find that if you, I don't know how often you get a fan mail or whatever, but is it, um, that's, you know, that album, that soundtrack is one of the most enduring kind of of the day, you know, people still continue to discover the songs on that, on those soundtracks, even today. I imagine you get a nice little, you know, line item on your mailbox money from, you know, Valley Girl royalties or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think it's. Eyes of Strangers is just, I think it's the biggest song that we recorded. And yeah. we do get money for licensing. I think it was in Ballers or whatever. Mm, just right. like six months ago. That's right. Anyway, so yeah. Okay. Um, but I think, I think uh, people discovered through that. A lot of people didn't know who the band was that was doing that song. Mm, good point. Right? Yeah, probably true. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because I'm looking on and YouTube and stuff and looking at the videos and going like, Oh my God, why do we cut our hair like that? Why did I have my glasses on all that stuff? And then you look at the comments and you go like, does anybody like us? Do they like us? And then you, you read like, I always wanted to know who, who the, what the name of the band so I could buy the records and thank God somebody up here put this up and then they discover some of our other stuff, yeah. you know, I mean, that's how it goes. Speaking of buying the records. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, the thing is, is like looking back back at it, I said I was proud. And I actually, the Paralos and my relationship with Paul is 
the favorite part of my life besides my family. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're very, very close still. Every time I go to Vancouver, I spend time with him, you know, and, uh, I'm very proud of our, our, you know, our canon of songs. I, I, I'm surprised sometimes because you, you step away from it and you, and you go back and you listen, you went, why didn't more people get a chance to hear it? Yeah. Because I thought we were pretty good. Yeah, I think we so too. We worked hard at it. Let me ask you, do you there think you some of that had to do with being Canadian? It sounds like it should not be a big deal at all. And yet, for some reason, I wonder if it is. That certain bands, now Loverboy probably were the ones that maybe broke through some of these perceived barriers. But was there an impression within the record label that like, oh, they're just a Canadian band. We don't, we just focus on breaking them in Canada, not necessarily, we don't have to put our muscle into the North America. Was there, or into the United States? Was that a feeling? I don't think it's directly that. A lot of things happen, you know, having made records and kind of like being involved in music business beyond the pale. You know, there's a hierarchy to labels through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. You know, there's like, for instance, um, there's a famous uh, record promotion guy that worked for A&M Records. His name is Charlie Minor. Hmm. And he ended up getting murdered by some stripper girlfriend. He told us once, he says, you know, I love you guys. He's from the South and he says, I love you guys, but I'll never do anything to help you because of your name. Your name is a slap in my face. It's what I do for a living. You know, we said, well, thanks, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. But he was the guy, he was the national guy in A&M and he just told us, I can't help you because that word is, is like, is is basically you know the record yeah. business at Poisonous. that point was based on payola yeah and we were kind of a slap in the face to everybody it's a business yeah. we thought it was it was funny we were sure we were laughing at but we we thought it was funny <laughs> and and then he even said and to put that dollar sign at the end my god <laughs> and we're going like you know we're just we're we're just trying to be funny sure right and it's <laughs> like you know there was a punk name we didn't even we had no idea that that would make such a big impression but evidently it did Uh, so which is like the strangest little thing but that has a huge impact yeah no kidding so basically they didn't do anything for us it's frustrating um you mentioned a minute ago about getting your records i don't to my knowledge those payola album albums have never come out on cd is that right oh they've never come out on cd they i transferred them all so they could do that. I mean, they're they're okay. not even on no. iTunes. No, they're not. And you're a big guy in the yeah. music biz. You can't put make someone do something for you. I would love those albums well, on CD. You know, I think a lot of people would, and I'd even like that. You know, yeah. the uh, I actually mm-hmm. knew the president of A and M, and I was talking to him, and it was just about there. And then he left, and somebody mm-hmm. else came in, and like the pale is who? Yeah. So it just got stalled, but I, I transferred it so it could be made into CD. Eventually, you know, it will, but there's, I guess there's not enough of a demand, I guess. I don't well, know how that works. I don't know. Yeah, it's I disappointing. It is. Yeah. Okay. Shoot. All right. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about, I want to ask you some questions about your production work. I, I had, you know, when I look back over your career and I'm thinking, what's the, uh, you know, what's the through line here to what uh, Bob has done? And one thing I noticed was that 
it seems to be that you're the guy that's working on a lot of these rock bands, albums that are their commercial breakthroughs. Uh, but and I'm thinking, is that the thing? Is that it, you know this? Maybe it starts with Loverboy, and then Loverboy begets Aerosmith, and that begets Bon Jovi, and that begets Metallica and the Cult, and so on and so on and so on. But what I realized later is that the common thread among all of this is probably just you, not just, but you working at Little Mountain Sound and that being a go-to place for those kinds of bands. Do what you know? Are people coming to you saying we want you to do what you did with Loverboy, or are they coming to you saying this is a well, great studio and you happen to work there? Well, you know, realistically, you know, I started with Bruce Fairburn. Mm-hmm. He, at the time, had heard about me because of some of the, like Jim Valance, he knew me mm-hmm. because we did jingles all together. So I guess he was good friends with Bruce and, and he just, I'm, I'm, I can't say for sure, but I'm sure he had an influence on Bruce trying me. Interesting. And it was just different from the guys that were, they were, you know, he was used to with prism. He was doing stuff at mushroom, etc. So he just wanted, I guess, somebody different, and I was lucky. He asked me to do the Armageddon album, Prism. started working together we did um and we did because of the prism album we did loverboy the first loverboy album Hmm. i was learning how to be a better engineer mixer with bruce and we were a great team but it was from the loverboy album everybody heard the first loverboy album and working for the weekend basically that was the first number one that we had together
And then, you know, people started to notice um, that's why we got Aerosmith permanent vacation. That's why we got Bon Jovi. Yeah. Uh, that and a honey and a honeymoon suite album that we did. Oh, so I, now I know that actually what happened is that Richie Richie said they were looking for somebody to do it, their next album, which mm -hmm. was, was slippery. And Richie just like loved the sound and John loved the sound of of Loverboy and Honeymoon Suite. Mm. And Richie really pressed on it because he said, That's us. Yeah. It's like it sounds lively. It doesn't it's not overproduced, it's just perfect and it sounds amazing. So from that, you know, because of Loverboy and Honeymoon Suite, Bon Jovi came and then yeah. then it just, you know, the Snow dominoes just Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, let me ask you, about you know, the, oh, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, and then after I did permanent vacation, I'm not going to get into, but some, some weirdness happened between Fairburn and I, mm -hmm. and I just, and Bruce, actually Bruce Allen, you know, who's very close to Bruce Fairburn and myself, he just says, you know, uh, I think we're on, I was on the road with rock and hide. And he told me, he says, you know what, you should just be a producer. You know, because that if you let me manage you, he says, you will be very successful. I'm not going to tell you exactly what the quote was, but, okay. you know, he he basically I'd known Bruce and worked with him and, and he managed the Paolas and Rock and Hyde. Uh, and he just said, this is look, he saw he saw this is what you should be doing, because yeah. this is looking like a dead end. Mm. you know mm -hmm. and you know which was like it was a reality check but i kind of knew it anyway so it forced me to kind of you know kind of stay with bruce you know i can't be treated like this anymore i gotta go off on my own yeah so the first thing i did was kingdom come That's when people as a producer wanted. Oh, that was the first it. album I did. Okay. Okay. After that, and Billy Duffy loved the album, sound of the album, and that's why I got did Sonic Temple. And then I did another band from Denmark called The Electric Boys. And then then the pieces started to come together. Yeah. And actually 
Tommy and Nikki told me that they played the Kingdom Come album, and they said, this is the, the next guy we want to get. Really? You know, because huh. I love the sound of it. Yeah. That's why I got Motley. And then okay. for Motley, Metallica wasn't a big fan of Motley, but they loved the Sonics, and they, yeah. they just loved how big it was. And so I got that from Motley yeah. and uh, Sonic Temple. Yeah. That's incredible. That's what I assumed kind of was going on. I want to ask you a few specific questions about some of these. I hope they're not ones you've been asked a million times, but I, uh, I saw Loverboy in concert last weekend. Uh, I live in Denver and they were, they did a thing with Rick Springfield and Tommy Two-Tone and yep. Jim Blossoms. And they are one of the, one of the best live acts I have. I just love them. And I feel like they're one of these bands that almost got, you know, their hits we're big, but they, you know, they're not, I don't know. It's it's like their place in history isn't quite as secure as it deserves to be, in my mind, a little bit anyway. You talk about working for the weekend. Do you remember anything specific about being in that room? I mean, the cowbell part is obviously now sort of iconic, but can you give us a story about the recording of that song in particular? Well, the, be the beginning, the basic track was cut at Mushroom. I didn't cut the mm. basic track. Okay. Okay. Basically, after being at Mushroom, they wanted to go back to Mushroom, or they they never recorded anything at Mushroom. So I guess after the first album, they said we want to try Mushroom. So they tried Mushroom, and they didn't like it there, and came back mm. to Little Mountain. So they cut the basic track there, and so everything you know, the guitars and everything was done at Little Mountain and mixed. Do you have any stories, related, any of the interesting anecdotes about them or that song, or even, you know, just the band in general? Well, the band in general, like, there's a whole pile of stuff that happened, uh, you know, for me personally. Um, first of all, you know, there, there comes a, a point when you kind of, like, you get to know, like, well, this feels really good. You know, this could be a hit. Mm -hmm. It was like, that's working for the weekend, mixing that, you yeah. know. yeah. Um, that was all, that's all done by hand too. There was no automation at the time. We didn't have it and stuff. What I, you know, from Paul Dean, I learned a lot about, you know, guitars and stuff. And Paul Dean was the first guy that taught me about guitars and, and like, cause he had a certain amp and a certain speaker box yeah. and a certain guitar that was his sound. And I'd never really put that together. I knew it existed by the bands that I love, but mm -hmm. he was the guy that just had this integrity about an idea about how they should sound. Yeah. And that was the first band that really came that I, I, okay. I learned from cool. about that. Cool. And, you know, like when we were doing the first Loverboy album, we'd finish at 10 o'clock and they would go play a, a club show <laughs> for three more hours after being in the studio all day. <sighs> so I, I, then I, I started to learn about the commitment and, yeah. and the integrity of, of bands. Right. Yeah. And they were just, you know, Really, recording Loverboy at that point was so easy because they were so good. Good. And still are. They seem like you know really I mean? nice down-to-earth guys, too. I don't know. You oh, can tell me totally. if I'm wrong. But, okay. No, you're, you're so right. When, um, when we were doing the first Loverboy, uh, Mike Greener used to pick me up in his, in his Vega, right? Because <laughs> I lived in Burnaby, and he did, too. So he picked me up, and we'd drive to the studio every day, and then... The album came back and, and we were laughing. We were talking as we were working on uh, the second album or Get Lucky. Uh -huh. I said, what happened to the Vega? And he says, well, I gave it to the paper boy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. and, he, and he bought a, he 
bought a white Volkswagen Rabbit convertible. But just the <laughs> yes. fact that he gave his, that Vega, he gave yeah. it to the paper boy. That's Mike Reno, just That's the great. greatest guy ever. That's great. Um, now, let me ask you another question about Honeymoon Suite. I, uh, I talked to Derry Grayen from the band actually just last week, and he was talking about, um, we were talking about how unfortunate it was that after the big prize comes out, and I believe you worked on that with Bruce Fairbairn. It's such an incredible album for its time, and there's no reason in the world why they shouldn't have been just as big as every other one of those, you know, quote-unquote hair metal bands or whatever, hard rock bands from the time. But one of the regrets that he mentioned over and over was that he didn't wait for you and Bruce to do the follow-up album because you guys were so busy with Bon Jovi at the time. Do you have any recollection of this? And that that kind of maybe even stalled stalled their career a little bit. Well, you know, I tell you what, this has happened numerous times. It's like numerous times with me, uh, besides that, that one, it happened with Kingdom Come. I mean, mm. Kingdom Come sold a million and a half records, and they thought they had to get out a record. I did it also with American High Five. We had a great big hit with uh, Flavor of the Week. Mm-hmm. It was a huge song, sold a lot of records. And the, the, the thing is, is they feel like when bands have big albums and big songs, they feel like they got to get something out right away and they don't take time to write it. Yeah. You know, yeah. they, they rush it. As they say, you know, they take your whole life to write your first album and you take six months to write the second. And right. usually it doesn't turn out so good. Right. So they're being in a hurry in the business is, is a mistake, period. Hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. should do it when you've got great songs. And it, really, the time doesn't matter. Hmm. I mean, for a time, it was timing did matter before Christmas. People sold a lot of records. Sure. You know, that timing is that's a good one to hit. But other than that, you know, it's it was a mistake on Honeymoon Suites and Kingdom Come and American High Five. Yeah. It's happened more than that, though. I guess yeah. probably a dozen people. You know, they you're in a hurry. Yeah. I would yeah. say that even we made the same mistake, Paul and I. You know, like we should have taken more time before we. You know, on the first day, we should have said, this is not us, you know, right. but we had to get out there, you know. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Okay. I figured. Um, let's talk about the cult for a minute. They had been a really respected, you know, sort of alternative rock. First of all, do you have a sense as to why they are categorized as alternative rock, but so many other bands that sound a lot like them are considered hard rock? I mean, it's kind of an odd, uh, it, like what goes into well, the thinking? Th- 
behind this, you know? The, the, thinking, the mm. thinking was is this, the, uh, the Love album mm-hmm. was not considered a rock album because it really isn't. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, okay. it's in the vein of a lot of the bands that were from England like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were considered an alternative band. I mean, they broke because of Sanctuary in the clubs. Yeah which is where all the British bands were, were breaking from. Yeah, they point. became okay. a rock band when they did, they did electric with Ruben. Yeah. He got them to play and sound like, cause there's a, another version of the electric album where it sounds like the love album. Right. And they mm. shelved that and basically copied ACDC for electric. Mm. Okay. And they liked that. Okay. Cause they're kind of, they liked the rock, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't want to be the alternative thing. Yeah. You know, I figured. Okay. How did you get Iggy Pop to come on New York City? That song on the uh, Song Temple album. Well, that was, um, you know, they they had become friends with Iggy and he was playing. So we all went to see the show and and Ian says, do you want to come and sing on a song called New York City? And he said, yeah. And he hopped on Ian's chopper. I wouldn't have hopped on Ian's chopper because it was so dangerous. But he got on the back of it. We went to Little Mountain and Iggy sang on it. it was just like, and of course. I had to tell them that I saw the raw power. It, uh-huh. For me, it was just, That's oh my God. Wondered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was big for me. <laughs> I bet. Okay, cool. Um, now, when you see a band, <clears throat> you know, we kind of touched on this a minute ago. You're, these bands are coming to you specifically and seeing some of the best success of their lives. Um, how is your... I mean, your phone must have just been ringing off the hook at the time. Everybody wants a piece of whatever you and Bruce are doing at Little Mountain Sound, I'm guessing, right? Are you being are you being approached by anyone who's not in the hard rock and heavy metal genre? Well, one, well, first of all, to answer your question, it's like, yeah, especially after the Black album, like I got a lot of phone calls of bands like Metallica, and I like to I like to record music and I like to bring the best out of a band. And as soon as you have a meeting, you kind of learn about what they want to do and you decide, well, I think, you know, I I can, I, I can do what you want done. Mm -hmm. Most bands have an idea of what they want done. They kind of go because they, 
they like my maybe something that I've done in Metallica. Uh, you know, they said we love the sound of Doctor Feelgood mm-hmm. and and Sonic Temple. Mm-hmm. Those were the albums that basically yeah. got me the gig. And they they kind of go like, uh, but I didn't record Doctor. I uh, didn't record uh, Motley or or Sonic Temple. Like it, 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 they sound different. Each one sounds different, and that's because the bands are different. Yeah. So when I grew up, kind of like as as kind of an artist with the pale, is then learning how to make records. The one thing I saw is that sometimes the producer had too much, in that, kind of interrupted in a band's kind of sound. Mm. And I always I learned that over a long period of time. That's not how I see records being made. Mm-hmm. It's like my, I think my favorite producer right now of all time is Jimmy Miller. And Jimmy Miller mm. was made the best Stones album, in my opinion. They've always had great stuff, but sure. I love that time frame. And what he did was he made the Stones stay the same, but he made them just better, yeah. better records. There's just they're the best records they made was with him, yeah. and that to me, like he didn't put a stamp on it other than it was the best that some of the best stuff they made. His stamp was getting the best out of the Stones, yeah. the character and everything of of that, and so really that's what I strive to be. I want to be Jimmy Miller because uh-huh. I think he was one one of the greatest that's producers. A, that's so and interesting. And other guys like he. Yeah. You you could you could even look at at George or George Martin with the Beatles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, there's an influence, but I don't think he ever changed who they were. Right. He just helped them make the records that they wanted to make, yeah. and that's what I strive to be yeah. continuously. I think the Motley record is Motley, but it's it, yes, it's it's my version of sonically what I think that where I was at at the time. And same with Metallica. People mm-hmm. say I changed Metallica. I didn't change Metallica. If you listen to the demos, all the songs are there, right? Right. I just helped them sound like I saw them live. So when they came to you, I I mean, because you take that album takes a lot of flack for not being in keeping with sort of the the attitude or the ideology, maybe, of some of those earlier records. But when they came to you, they said, you know, we like the sound, the sounds you're getting. We want some of that, and. was the plan to be a little bit more commercial? Was that outright spoken at the time? No, it was not. It was not spoken as commercially. They'd love the sound because, mm. uh, you know, th- this always happens. There's a lot of little things that happen that, that where you get to where it ends up being. I didn't say that right, but for <laughs> instance, it's like they asked me to mix their next album. Mm. Okay. Uh, the one after Justice. And when they said that, I, I, I replied, Bruce said, Bob doesn't want to mix it. He wants to produce it. Otherwise, he's out. He's not in. Mm. And of course, they were instantly kind of like, who does this guy think he is? <laughs> right. Yeah. Evidently. Evidently. So they basically they thought about it and they came up to see me. And so they came up, they brought a cassette. They played me Sad But True. That was, I think, the first song they played me. Good. And in my head, I went, oh, I can do this. Yeah. You yeah. know, because I'd, I'd, I'd seen seen them live, the cult warm, uh, warmed up for the, the Justice Tour, right? Mm. And I stayed for Metallica and watched them, and I went, their records don't sound like this. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were big and just heavy and just, right. like, so great. Anyway, 
So they said, this is, you know, we want to have more of a groove. And, you know, these are the mm-hmm. songs we wrote. We don't want everything to be fast. Right. Okay. You know, we want, we, we, they want to go places. Yeah. They want to go to another level musically. And they had that figured out. Yeah. They knew what they wanted to do. I just helped them. Yeah. And what everybody misses about that record in particular, it's produced by Bob Rock and Lars Ulrich and James Hetfield. We mm. were a team. We did it together, right? Yeah. Equal partners. If they had had a problem with something, it's not your fault. Everyone has a stake in how things are turning out. And if the two leaders of the band are okay with the way with quality control, then it's as much their decision as it is yours, right? Well, it, but there's that in the fact that, you know, I mean, we I was immersed with all the guys in Metallica for 14 months. True. I live with them basically every day for 14 months. And you, you end up, you know, you, you have an idea of what you want and then you start making it and it becomes what it is. So there was never a point like, oh, we want to do, you know, uh, you know, we want, you know, spruce it up, Bob. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. it was just like James had never sang a vocal where it was just his voice. He was always doubled. I don't know if you know what that means, but I do. Yeah. he'd sing one. Yeah, he'd sing one line and then he'd double mm-hmm. it and move to the next line. And I told him, well, I'll get a sound that's as good as you sound doubled and you can just do whatever you want. And he says, well, OK, show me. So I got him a great sound. And then he got into just and I said, the reason is, is you're if you double it, you lose all the character in your voice. Right. It frees you up. And so he learned that. That's not a trick to be commercial. That's just showing them, you know, how I learned to record music. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now you got to remember that the only person they knew before me was Fleming Rasmussen, who is, is a great producer, but he taught them how to record the way he knew how to record. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, all those albums, they never played in the studio together. They were all oh. like, they were kind of manufactured in a way. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. They never played in the studio together. And when I, you know, they asked me, how do you record? And I said, well, you guys are all going to sit in the studio together and you're going to play the track and we're going to get a great track and get it feeling right. And they, they were going like, what? <laughs> and I said, but that's how I record records. And, and then I told them why. And I said, so I can change the bass part. We can change the drums. Mm-hmm. You know, because we're hearing everything basically as one. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's how you really form a song and you get the right tempo and stuff. So we got to know each other and it ends up being, like I said, it ends up being the sum of the timing with, in my career, the, the timing in their career, what they want to accomplish. I just helped them make a yeah. great album. Yeah. And I don't, I don't hear commercialism. I just hear Greatness. I do too. Not and on my behalf. Yeah, I agree. I do too. And I think it's odd when p- people, especially rock bands with some kind of street cred, are meant to, um, you know, apologize for their success. I could understand if it was some really bold sellout move, but it, that it wasn't that to me. Um, it was just taking everything kind of up a notch, and it worked. And they shouldn't have to apologize for that. You helped them get there, you know. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that's just we my did own it feeling. together. Yeah. Like yeah. we, we did it together. And I'll tell you something, but I understand the band, mm-hmm. right? Because when Led Zeppelin three came out, I heard the immigrant song. I said, fucking, this is great. Yeah. And then I heard the record and I was so disappointed because it was all acoustic, mainly acoustic. <laughs> That's funny. That's you my know? favorite Led and, Zeppelin album, but yeah, I hear you. 
But 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 wait a sec. Yeah, I didn't finish. The I point figured. is, is <laughs> you know, like like a year later, it's it, now it's one of my favorite Led Zeppelin albums. Yeah, yeah. They're all my favorite, but you sure. know, that's just it's almost like you feel like like the band's kind of I don't know. Mm-hmm. They've gone astray or something, but really, what it is them is just being a band trying yeah. to make the music that they love, right? Agree, I totally agree. Um, okay, let's talk about Aerosmith for a minute. When Permanent Vacation comes along, I mean this this guy is this is a time in their career where they're trying to clean everything up. Um, I do believe I I don't know for sure, but I do think they are sort you know they're looking to Holly Knight and Desmond Child and outside sort of pop rock songwriters to kind of help them relaunch themselves as this new cleaned up we're here we're better than ever sort of band was that kind of the attitude that went into permanent vacation was that you know was that a known narrative while you're working on this album like we need to relaunch aerosmith in a new way with great pop songs or was it not that thought out well i i don't you know i think basically i you know my what i know about it is that you know uh, but there was a guy that we, Bruce and I did a lot of work with John Kalodner. It's an A&R mm-hmm. guy. And yep. he was, he's brilliant. And, you know, uh, he took over Aerosmith and they did done with mirrors, which is the one where they really came back. That True. was the first album. Kind of I don't think everybody. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. It flopped because it was basically just a, a rock album and yeah. they, they were trying to get back into it. So John Kalodner says, you know, you should try writing with Jim Valance, Holly Knight, and, you know, and just to, to help you finish songs or whatever. And, of course, John Kalodner as a record guy would be going, I want hits. Yeah. I think the Aerosmith guys were just trying to, like I said, I don't think there was conscious, let's get on the radio, it's mm. just, let's make a great album. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I, so many times people think these are like these big plans and stuff, and usually what it is is you're just trying to make a great record. Yeah. So they enjoyed having that that outside perspective, and it helped them write great songs. Yeah. Um, for me, that record just was, you know, there was times Bruce Forever used to go home for dinner, and sometimes he wouldn't come back. So, <laughs> and they they continue to 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 work on songs and uh-huh. stuff. But we recorded the album with Bruce. But I'm just saying, right. there was times when Mike Fraser and myself were in the control. And Aerosmith's in the studio, and basically, it's like, I can't even believe, comprehend yeah. that Aerosmith are in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just unbelievable. You must like, have been dying. my name. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, you have no idea. I bet. It was, you have no idea. It was like Ronson, right? You, yeah. you just have these times in your life, you go like, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah. Constantly. But that was one of those moments. It was okay. like... Oh my God. Yeah. And then Tyler, you know, and yeah. these guys, they, they, they were my idols. You see, and they came out of that same scene that with the New York Dolls and everything that I loved. I mm. loved Aerosmith. Mm. Still do. Yeah. You know? Very cool. What about Bon Jovi? I mean, similar kind of thing. I don't, you know, it's not a matter of cleaning anyone up necessarily, but uh, another album that changes the course of history and especially the the lives of everyone involved. I mean, when you work on something like Slippery When Wet and you see it go out in the world and it becomes its own living creature, basically, 
How does your life change? I mean, at this point, we've talked now about three or four different albums that are so gigantically huge that your life is impacted for the for the rest of your time. How do you how does your life change? What sort of changes do you make to your life? Do you go buy a nicer car? Do you eat at finer restaurants? Do you sock more money away? Do you put it toward your kid's college fund? Do you not care and just continue to sort? It's all about the music. It's not really, I didn't change my life that much. What are those transitions like for you? Well, if you're talking about me personally, it's like, you see, I got paid $10,000 Canadian to record and mix Slippery. And that's which it? Was about, you didn't have a point on that, that or anything? No, well, I was promised a point, and that's part of... Oh. Uh, after Honeymoon Suite, somebody promised me a point and reneged on the point when it became huge, oh, and that's course. part of why, one of the reasons why we split up. I'm not going to name names, but yeah. um, basically mm-hmm. I did that, so... I mean, everybody made a lot of money, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, I didn't. But that's fine. I was, I was fine that I actually recorded and mixed a huge record. Mm-hmm. So, believe me, it changed my life in so many great ways. With not talking about the money, sure. Um, what it did, it just put me basically in another place in terms of the business, mm-hmm. the respect part of it. Yeah. Like Jimmy Iovine and Shelley Ackes phoned me and said. What you know, they wanted to know how I got the sound on, on Slipper When Wet, and I was just doing my job, you know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and there was no magic; it was just what I had done before with the other band. And you know, the thing is, is Bruce during Slippery, we had a conversation. We just said, you know, we're talking, and I forget it was him or me that just like God, I hope it goes gold because then we'll get another job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where it was. Okay, we were just wanting to go gold, but. You know, I think in the first month, on the Slippery Went Wet sold three million copies. Oh my god! In the first month, yeah, we had no idea. Yeah, yeah, like no, no idea. But I will say that that there's no question that Wanted and Living on a Prayer were two that we both thought this this is going to do well. Really, you know, it, it'll go gold and platinum, and yeah. you know, we figured this this is going to do well. This 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 is just too good. Maybe not you know? so much that living on a prayer is going to become the anthem of all anthems. Uh, still, thirty years later, but you thought you might sell a million copies or something. Well, we were hoping for gold. As I said, that's true. That's true. We were yeah. hoping for gold. Yeah, yeah. You just that's, and then it just happens, and yeah. Uh, you can't really control yeah, it, but it, of course it changed my life. It did yeah. change my life. And, yeah. and the great thing is, is John wanted to put the same team back together and, and, you know, Bruce and I had kind of like had a falling out. Mm. And so that's when Bruce became my manager, right? Just before negotiating New Jersey. Bruce right? Allen, right? So, yes. Bruce, yeah. yeah. That, 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 that whole thing, that conversation I told you about. Yeah. Uh, he says, so you should do this. And I got paid properly on on New Jersey. Yeah. So I'm just clarifying because we're change. talking about a Bruce Fairbairn and a Bruce Allen. And so I was trying to clarify who, yeah. you know, the different Bruces yeah. were. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, one last one. Tell me about Tal Bachman. Um, I know that that's not, you know, it was a big hit. She's so high. She's blood, flesh and Sound. But somehow I can't believe that 
anything should happen I know where I belong And nothing's gonna happen did um i feel a little bit of a kinship to him because he grew up mormon and so did i and so you know the mormon community has always sort of embraced Tal, even though he's not mormon anymore but um was there anything was there anything interesting or any special stories about working with him on that bruce put us together and through randy backman mm-hmm. dad you know i got the demos and she so high was there and i went yeah, I want to do this. So yeah. he came over to Hawaii and, uh, you know, he had rehearsed with some musicians and we cut the album and, and we just made it the best way we could. Mm, you know, okay. he very, very talented guy, very talented guy. Um, and then when it was done, he's one of those guys that just thought it was all about him. Ah. And mm. that that's when it kind of got a little weird. And then I, I don't need to tell the, the details, but he caught him, kind of shot himself in his foot. It could sure. have done better. Yeah. It's a case of where somebody, as soon as they feel like it's successful, they know everything. Yeah. And when you when you get started in the business and you know everything, mainly the business goes, go ahead, do what you want. Right. Right. And that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So like I, I said, he shot himself <clears throat> in his foot. It could have been bigger. The album had a lot of great songs. Yeah. And he could have had a big career. But hmm. I guess. Some people just get in the way of themselves. Good so, to know. Okay. It's sad. He's a very talented guy. I enjoyed writing it. Huh. It was very a lot of fun. Good. And his dad came. His dad came for a couple of days, and it was great to have Randy. Good. I've always admired and respected Randy. Yeah. You know, so it okay. was it was great. It was a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah. Um, do you live in Hawaii full time? You're yeah. in L.A. right now, right? I'm talking to you in L.A. Yeah, I, oh. I, I I'm in Vancouver all the time. My yeah. son and my sister live there. And, you know, all my friends, the, you know, the people that I love are in Vancouver. So, sure. you know, I work at uh, Brian's studio all the time because it's the best studio in the world. Mm. And, uh, you know, so I'm in Vancouver all the time. And uh, right now I'm in L.A. because of the bands I'm working with. Okay. Right? So, okay. Well, that you talk yeah, about how and, success impacts your life. I'm, <laughs> you wouldn't have moved to Hawaii prior to, you know, things working out, whether it be Metallica or Motley or whatever, right? So that's got to be Oh, good. make no mistake. Yeah, it's it's kind of when it happens. That's I sure. guess I should make that point. Yeah. Of course, all of this changed my life. Listen, yeah. I grew up in Winnipeg as a kid that saw the Beatles and the Rolling Stones on Ed Sullivan and especially Keith Richards. And, you know, and I thought, I don't know how to do this, but I just want to be do that. Yeah. I want to be that, you know, and I'm so blessed. Yeah. that I lived in the time that I lived in and, and I just, you know, things happen for me. Yeah. It's, you know, some people are gifted 
I'm I'm just kind of a layman. I just worked hard because yeah. I'm just love making records and I love music. Yeah. It dominates my life. Yeah. So it's just, about, it's about the love of music. Sure. No question. And I, so I'm very blessed. Good. I, um, you know, one thing I've been thinking about lately, cause I talked to a lot of people for the show and I've talked to a few producers too. And, you know, here you guys' names are attached to these legendary albums that, you know, change cultures and change the way people think and feel about music. And yes, the current music uh, industry or business is greatly impacting everyone's ability to continue to make music and make a living doing it. I wonder sometimes if, if the changes are actually impacting the producers more than even the artists, because the artists can continue to go out and put on a show and sell a few tickets but the producers are there's those big budgets are not there anymore. You know, those big acts are not necessarily even always there anymore. And if they, cause a lot of them are dying off, they're putting out fewer and fewer albums. And if they are, there's not that giant, you know, per diem there to pay for everything. Have you seen, uh, well, have you th- seen oh, things yeah. change for you that way? Well, well, for me, it did change. Of course it changed. The business has, <clears throat> you know, changed greatly. Yeah. And yeah. But the thing is, is like, if you, if you go into the music business just to make money, okay, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a different head, you know, mindset yeah. Yeah. than where I came from. And I just told you, it's like records is, yeah. it's my art form. It's my, it's my life. Yeah. Uh, this is what I, to me, I'm just so happy that I could do this for a living, support yeah. my family, et cetera. But it, it doesn't stop because the money's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Because that's not why I got into it. This is, this is what I love. It's an yeah. art form. So yeah. I don't stop. There's guys that don't do it anymore because there's not enough money. Well, you know, they didn't come from the place I came from. Yeah. So most of the guys that are passionate about it, right? Yeah. I'm sitting in Richie Sambora's house right now, and we're working <laughs> on a new record for him. And it's because, you know, that's he's great. not a Bon Jovi, but he, he's, he's not going to stop writing songs. Sure. Ever. Yeah. And I won't either. Yeah, I'm writing point. more songs than I ever did. Good. So okay. it's whether your heart's in the music or in the money. Yeah, Mine's that's a healthy perspective. Okay. Well, look, you've been very gracious with your time. And I want I have two last questions I want to ask you that I ask almost everybody. And I'm really interested to hear what your answers are going to be to these. Number one, I'm curious if you have any regrets. And that could be anything. It, typically, what I mean by that is typically a decision that you made that maybe you know, impacted your career or left you with something that, you know, felt feels undone or, or that you don't have closure about. Maybe it's somebody who asked you to produce them that you didn't do and you wish you had, or somebody you think you could really, whose career you could really work with and take to another level. But then I also want to know what the tastiest memory is. All of this stuff, maybe it's, you know, looking through that glass and seeing Mick Ronson in there. I don't know. Tell me what just the most unbelievable memory is that, that you will take with you to the, to your grave. Well, that, that was a couple questions. Yeah, there's two <laughs> questions in there. I just embellished them, yes. <laughs> Biggest regret, favorite memory. Well, there's some regrets, and, and not always a decision. Well, one, the stupidest thing I ever did, okay? Mm-hmm. And it was just as Nirvana was breaking. I got a tape by Allison Chains. Now, yes. so I get the cassette, and I, I, I got like hundreds of cassettes. Mm-hmm. And I didn't listen to the, this cassette. Mm. That's, a, that's a big regret because obviously I heard the record. I went, what an idiot I am. But let's just go with that stupidity. Okay, I like that's, that. 
That's so great. <laughs> uh, oh, I think then, we're all oh, like that. I know what the other one was. Oh, yeah, please. And this is, this is not a decision that I made, but I, Prince phoned me three times. No. Right? Now, he never phoned me when I had time available. He always phoned me when I was in the middle of a record. And I said, I'll try and, and get, you know, some time in a week. Uh-huh. And he said, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> three times. <laughs> Three fucking times he said, Can you be here Monday? And it's like, No, I can't. <laughs> what time period <laughs> you know, are we I, talking I about? Uh well this was this was uh well it was kind of when I was doing share, so it was kind of like before Metallica. Oh, okay. Actually <laughs> actually I did meet Prince finally because I did a share record and there was a release party and it was about, while I was doing the black album. Hmm. And I actually met him. And he said, anyway. you won't return my calls. Yeah. Why don't you come when I tell you to come? Yeah. Right, yeah. And in his world, I get it, though, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I want you now. Yeah, Most everyone drops drop everything. Like, exactly, yeah. But I, I didn't because I can't do that to a musician. I don't know who I was working with at the time. But every time I was going, oh, fuck. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the a regret is I wish that you two would have called me. But uh-huh. come to think of it, they don't really need me. <laughs> no, probably true. <laughs> They're probably doing just an hour tab, but yeah. you know. Yeah. And I wish John Bonham was alive. You yeah. Know? Okay. Because yeah. I would have loved to have done that. You know, because uh, we could tell. Yeah, we yeah. don't have enough time. But I believe it. Okay. There's oh, there's okay. There you go. I can tell you the moment that was just beyond belief. Yes, please. Was the the day that Jimmy Page walked over to me and said, hi, Bob, good to see you. Like I'd met him, but you know, it was like, I was at the Sunset Marquee, I was having breakfast with a record guy, right? And I've met Jimmy quite a few times and talked to him uh-huh. and stuff. Oh, I should t- actually tell you about this. Yeah. This is even a better story. Tell me. Okay, so I was on tour with Bon Jovi and when, um, with my band Rockhead mm-hmm. and, um, I'd met Jimmy because he came to see Rockhead at a club and he was doing the Coverdale Page album in in the other studio. So I'd met him, you know, said, hi, Jimmy, pleased to meet you, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so so we're playing Amsterdam and, you know, uh, Rockhead's on stage. Oh, no, just before going on stage, the room manager said, somebody here, here to see you. And I walk out and it's Jimmy Page. Oh, my God. He says, I just wanted to say hello. I mean, can't wait to see the show. So we play the show and Richie Sambor, myself and Jimmy Page go to a place called the, uh, what is it? The uh, American Hotel. We go to the bar and all we talk about is guitars and music. And we were there for six hours and it was the most amazing night of my life. All we did was like, it was not, it wasn't chicks. It wasn't, it was just us. And this huge scene was behind us. All we did. I even went to the bathroom for my wife. I said, Angie, you're not going to believe this. You know, because I phoned her late. She thought you'd been drinking, right? Right, right. I'm sitting with Jimmy Page and I got to go. I'll phone you tomorrow. But <laughs> it was the most amazing night of my life. I believe it. Because this is like, I bought Led Zeppelin at Hudson's Bay in Victoria the day it came out. Led Zeppelin 1 is, that's something that changed my life. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a booster. When I heard Led Zeppelin, I went, "This is it." 
Yeah. Another time when it was, this. I had a lot of this is it, but uh-huh. yeah, there you go. That was one of the most That's amazing the things in my life. I believe it. I believe yeah. it. I believe it. Well, uh, well, thanks for there talking to me, Bob. This was a uh, dream come true. I, when I wanted to feature the payolas, I didn't actually think that it would be you that would be doing that with me. And so I'm really grateful that you've taken the time. One thing I wanted to mention, I interviewed Great. Keith Scott last week, uh, Brian Adams guitarist. Yeah. And he was, we were talking about this side project he has called the Fontanas. And he was saying, yeah. Oh, I, I need to, I have these tapes and I really want to get this out and get it mixed. I need to send them to my friend, Bob Rock. And I said, Oh, I'm actually talking to Bob Rock next week. So anyway, if you ever feel like calling Keith Scott and saying, Hey, I'll mix your Fontanas album. He's what he uh, is well, waiting for your call. <laughs> no, no. I mixed the first one. And by the way, Keith and I are the same age and really? he was my idol growing. Yeah. In the bars. He was, he was basically Jeff Beck. He is Jeff Beck anyway, but he's the best. Um, he's a very close friend of mine. Yeah, we did. He, I, I get him to play on Jan Arden's albums and stuff. So yeah, yeah, we're yeah. very close. He's such a good guy. Cool. And uh, yeah, he's I was really grateful to talk and to him. What an amazing, very underrated in, in the world, but he's that was a, one of yeah. the best guitars I've ever recorded. That was exactly Definitely. my point when I wanted to talk to him. Anyway, well, thank you, Bob. This was okay. a dream come true. I really appreciate it. There you have it, Bob Rock. I hope that was okay. You know, I'm, I've mentioned on here before, I try my best to give you a sort of almost a definitive story of the artist or band that we're talking to. And I feel like we got there with the Paolas, but of course it's it's impossible to give you a definitive overview of all the amazing production work he's done. So I tried to hit some of the highlights. I tried to touch on things you probably may not have heard before. We purposely didn't play a lot of the songs that you've heard a million times, but I want to close it out with one of, this might be my favorite song from those, you know, gigantic albums that he worked on in the late 80s, early 90s. This is, of course, Edie, Chow Baby by The Cult. I love this song. So I, I wanted to make one concession and close it out with this one because it's so good. Bob's the best. Such a great, humble guy, too. Can you believe that? Anyway, uh, thank you, Bob. And thank you once again, Adam Foster, for making this happen. You are a miracle worker. Now, next week, we are talking to a member of an Another one of those excellent British 70s kind of blues pub rock bands that is most people know, but they know this band primarily because of the people who came out of this band and went on to greater success. That's probably how you know this band. Anyway, that's who we're going to talk to next week. A huge thanks to Yan the Man, my right-hand man, for all that you do, buddy. Thanks for everything. Um, you guys know how to find us by now. You can find us on Facebook and like the page. You can send us a message on there. Um, you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.